Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the One Foot Down podcast episode two. I'm Eric Murtaugh and today we're going to talk about a bunch of topics with one of our new writers. But first, I want to remind everyone that you can listen to this podcast on your smartphone or tablet directly from the SoundCloud player on our site at onefootdown.com. Better yet, you can go to iTunes and download this episode and make your life a little easier and subscribe to our podcast. Okay, let's get things started. Uh, My guest is our recently hired basketball analyst. He's now the elder statesman of our crew. You know him as Joe Shu on our site. His name is Joe Schuler. Joe, how are you doing? Thanks, Eric. I'm doing great. I don't know about the old man designation, but otherwise I'm doing pretty well, thanks. <laughs> All right, let's get to our first segment. Today um, we're going to talk about post-spring's positional battles. Um, I'm just going to walk you through the focal positions. Um, at center we have Nick Martin for Braxton Cave. At right guard we have Connor Hanready for Mike Golick. At tight end we have Troy Nicholas taking over for Tyler Eifert. At running back, we have George Atkinson and company for Theo Riddick and Sierra Wood at running back. At defensive end, we have Sheldon Day for Capron Lewis Moore. At middle linebacker, we have Jared Grace for Manti Teo and strong safety Elijah Shoemate for Zeke Mata. Now, question for you, Joe. Which potential new starter slash position has you the least worried head- headed into the fall? I think the least worried is probably the one that comes with the least press, which which is, you know, I think Jared Grace steps into Teo's shoes, maybe not from a leadership point of view, Eric, but certainly from a 
from a capability and a physical abilities point of view, I think he brings so much to the table that I'm I'm really excited to see him on the field. I, I don't think we're going to see the kind of drop-off that people have predicted in that spot. It's funny that you say that. I actually had him as my second choice. I had um, Sheldon Day on the defensive line, mostly because I think um, being paired on the line with Lewis Nix and Stefan Tua is just going to be really important for him. Um, that leaves him a lot of uh, room to do. Uh, you know, he can make mistakes, but Nix and Tuit can kind of cover them up for him. Well, not only that, but he's going to see a lot of one-on-one -on -one blocking, right? I mean, a lot of, lot of fronts are going to slide to those two, you know, All-American candidates, and uh, he's going to have an opportunity to, to do a lot of cleaning up, I would imagine. That's a good point. Now, let's talk about Grace for a little bit. Um, is it is it kind of weird to think that he is more physically gifted than Manti? I don't know if it is or it isn't. You know, we, when you go back to, you know, when Weiss signed Teo, I mean, this was the the first big recruit, you know, particularly defensive we had had in ages. And so it almost seems um, blasphemous to then go out there and say, Grace may be a better athlete for the position, but, but certainly the, the man's laid down plenty of tape and uh, and shown flashes of having all the physical tools necessary to be there. Uh, obviously, he's replacing a guy who's going to be playing on Sundays and then and who the the Chargers are talking about being a three down linebacker in the league. But you know, I, I don't think we're looking at a a dramatic drop off here. I think we're looking at a guy who brings a lot of physical tools to the table. And you know, if Bobby if Bobby Diaco is willing to call you a werewolf, then I'm willing to call you a werewolf too. <laughs> Exactly. I think uh, I think he's going to put up big tackle numbers. I know a lot of the people watching practices have said that sideline to sideline that he's faster than Teo. So you know he's going to be getting a lot of uh, assisted tackles. I know in the spring game he had like seven in the first half, and then he didn't play at all really in the second half that much. So I think it's kind of a situation where he's not going to be putting up you know, seven interceptions or maybe the the huge impact no. that Teo had, but this is but a kid that could step in right away and have 110 tackles and have a really strong first season. And I think that's where we need him to contribute. You know, I, th I think Teo's year this year was, you know, obviously something very special, but the guy hadn't had a pick before this year, and suddenly, you know, thank you, Denard, for a couple of those, but, um, you know, <laughs> he, he really found his way into that that turnover machine, I think what we're what Diaco's going to ask Grace to do is to to be rock solid. I mean, this is a, a, a clearly a bend don't break kind of schema that that they're running, and uh, you know if Grace can clean up for 100 plus tackles, I think uh, that's mission accomplished for the defensive side of the ball. That's true, and the defense is set up for that middle linebacker, especially the Mike linebacker, to 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 get a lot of tackles and make a lot of plays. So he has that going for him. I just think you know that you you think about also the fact that he's got um, a lot of experience lining up next to him on every down, whether it's Carlo on run fits or whether it's Fox on on you know kind of more of a the, the pass coverage side of that 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 the the position next to him, the will linebacker. So uh, he's not coming in and having being asked to be everything for everyone. He's coming in to he's he's being asked to come in and be really really solid. Now, do you think he's going to be starting at Mike Linebacker the first game of the season? I know there was some talk about uh, Carlo, I believe, moving over to the mic. I think you know, Diaco's talked too much, too 
effusively about this guy for so long, Eric, that I just can't see him not being on the field for that first snap. I, I think he's there uh, from day one. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay. Um, and then the other one that's really interesting to me, Eric, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on, is, is bringing in the mighty Hercules for, for uh, Eifert. And to me, this is a bit of a throwback to the beginning of the tight, the tight end U. I mean, Fasano was much more of a traditional attached blocking right. tight end who made some great catches and some great athletic plays. We got into this whole Carlson and Rudolph and Eifert era where we had more of a receiving and a split out tight end. You know, do you see Nicholas kind of bringing us back to that more traditional uh, attached tight end look? And, and where do you see him fitting in there? I think he's going to be on the line a little bit more. Um, I had him as the third uh, least worry, but I'm a I don't know the tight end situation. Um, I believe in one of the articles I, I had written, there's only like twelve receptions total out of the whole group. So I'm a little bit wor- worried as far as their pass catching skills are concerned. But I mean his body, he's such a big athlete, and I think they're gonna utilize him on the line a lot more. I don't really think we're gonna see him. Uh, in the slot a whole lot, especially early on. And we might not be asking the tight ends this year to make nearly the number of, you know, the volume of catches. They're going to need to make some key catches, but um, probably not the volume we've been asking for for the last two or three years. That's true. And I also think having Nicholas on the line is going to open up that seam a little bit more. I know Eifert uh, was able to get there from all over the field, but uh, traditionally, you know, that tight end, with a little chip block and then run down the seam. I think that's going to be a nice little bread and butter play for Nicholas. Let's hope. Let's hope. I think that the Irish offense through the years has always been at their best when they've been able to slip that over the top and uh, and get a big guy running. Um, it'll for the the old guys among us. Uh, we'll hark back to the days of Irv Smith carrying people down the field. <laughs> that's true. Okay. Um, now let's. Another question, which potential new starter position has you the most worried heading into the fall? Most worried for me, um, it always starts up front, right? I mean, anytime anybody new is coming into the, the first five on the line, you sweat a little bit. And we sweat it last year with uh, with Golik getting his first kind of time on the line. Um, and for me, seeing that center get swapped out is always stressful, right? You know, you just know that the amount of influence that the center has on the line calls and really the cohesiveness of the line play. Uh, you know, Nick Martin's got some big shoes to fill in, and that's the one where, you know, I'm going to have my eyes glued uh, when we take the field against Temple. I was right there with you, but just one position over to the right. Um, a little bit more concerned with Connor Hanrady, only because I know the coaches have spoken so highly of Nick Martin for the past 18 months or so. And uh, although, you know, Lewis Nix has been able to get the best of him in some practice footage and stuff like that, the coaches have seemed to tell everyone that he's been doing a pretty good job there. Um, Hanrady, I don't know, it didn't seem like they really talked a lot about a lot of him uh, during spring practice. Um, sometimes that's a, a bit worrisome. And uh, I'm not sure if he's going to be physically ready to be a starter from day one, I'll, I think uh, Jim on our site thinks that Lombard's going to move inside. Uh, we'll see what happens, but I think Handreddy's probably a bigger concern of mine. 
Well, I think we're going to learn pretty quickly where whether you know Harry, he stand likes to get. Is he looking for the best five? Is he looking for specific positional fits? Is you know what is he looking for before we know exactly where he's going to start shuffling? But certainly, Spring didn't give us any indication that they they were uncomfortable with Henry there. I mean, it, it, this is a this is a very tough position to judge in this in the spring because uh, you know as you've said on the site before and many have said before, it's like if the defensive line dominates from in the spring, is it because the defensive line is dominant or is it because the offensive line is behind? Um, yeah. You got a hard time, uh, you know, feeling bad about your interior lineman if Lewis Nix is giving them trouble, right? Uh, you know, if the best uh, nose guard in America is giving your guys trouble, uh, that's probably to be expected and, and isn't necessarily a cause for the panic button quite yet. That's true. That, um, this offers a little bit of a segue into our the next question. Uh, which projected starter post-spring do you think may not start in the fall? I have, obviously, hand-ready as the big question mark. But other than that, I thought um, typically the spring you'll see people starting and there's not really a whole lot of a difference in the fall. Do you see uh, any other position opening up? Well, I mean, I think one way that that could happen, Eric, is obviously somebody who wasn't an early enrollee can come in and, and, and really show something to the staff in fall camp. And uh, I think it's a stretch. I think particularly with the group and the depth that uh, you know Kelly and the staff, have, Coach Kelly and the staff have put together, it, it's hard to see a freshman jumping a bunch of guys. The only place where I could potentially see it is somebody like Redfield coming on on campus at the safety position, and just showing something that we haven't seen back there since the Bobby Taylor days, right? You know, something you know that level of, of wow factors is is going to be what it's going to take. And I don't know that anybody else coming in and fall other than him uh, kind of meets that. You know, Jalen Smith would be the only other one. But again, that's very tough for an 18-year-old linebacker to step on the field and fall uh, and unseat somebody who's already pretty well established. That is true. I, ho I guess he put on some weight, but um, he's probably not going to be asked to do a whole lot as far as standard downs are concerned. Um, but, no, I think we're going to see him streaking down the field on kick coverage probably and, and maybe get some snaps here and there. But uh, I think you're 100% right there. It's just it's a lot to expect of an 18-year-old. That's true. Max Redfield's going to be a pretty interesting kid to watch in the fall. You know, there's a really good depth at safety, um, although it doesn't seem that Elijah Shoemate has that strong safety spot on lockdown. Um, and then you could also have – Redfield at the nickel spot. He could be an extra corner. He could even transition to wide receiver. There's a lot of options for him there. What about running back, Eric? I mean, how do you feel about those guys coming in and, and, and George's hold on that position in terms of somebody who could be unseated between now and uh, in, in the early part of, of uh, fall ball? Well, I had GA3 as the my second biggest worry uh, heading into the fall, but I think the gap between that right guard spot and the running back is a little bit larger. Um, I think my opinion is that the coaches really like Atkinson, and I think they're going to get him to improve, and I don't really see him not starting the season. But I think the issue with him is he might be having a couple of the younger kids uh, surpassing him later in the season, but... I, if I had to put money down, I don't think anyone else is going to be starting that first 
uh, series against Temple other than George Atkinson. No, it's a, I think, again, I think you're right. I think that's a huge stretch. Now, whether or not, you know, we're saying the same thing going into the, you know, week in Palo Alto, we'll see. But uh, certainly for that first week uh, in Notre Dame Stadium, I think, yeah, actually, we're going to see George Atkinson uh, lining up on that first snap. And, you know, starting at the running back position really isn't that important. You know, George could get the first two carries and then not get a carry for two more quarters, you know. But I think he's going to be the main guy for the first quarter of the season, at least. Yeah, no doubt. But, uh, you know, I think for the first time in a long time, I also think that we may be in a position where we've got a number of different guys we're comfortable handing the ball to back there, um, which which clearly, you know, given the length of the season and the grind of the kind of schedule that they're going to be facing this year, I'm, I'm glad to see some of the names and capability, maybe not the volume of previous carries going into the year, but certainly a lot of ability uh, lining up in the backfield this year. That's true. I'm very interested to see how the freshmen, Terry and Folston and Greg Bryant, enter the summer camp and then transition into the August camp. Um, I was actually just watching, rewatching some highlights of both of them and um, I think Greg Bryant has a really good chance to see a lot of action early in his career and with a lot of question marks at that slot position, I think Folston's going to be able to uh, move in there and see some time and he's probably going to be a, a player in the return game as well. So it'll be really exciting. Yeah, and that really brings up one of the more interesting guys, you know, that we obviously got a very abbreviated look at this fall, but you know, Carlisle to me represents the wild card in both of those mixes at running back and at slot. Um, in his performance and his durability will probably go a long way to determining how much we see Folson in his first year, if at all. Yeah, that's another interesting point. I wonder if they're gonna start him as like a, a slot receiver who kind of gets a bunch of reverses and stuff like that, or if he's going to be more of a, a running back at first that kind of has a, more of a theoretic role, uh, you know, moving out into the slot, stuff like that. It'll be really interesting to see how they work him in the fall. Yeah, or maybe even just motioning him out of the backfield, right? And then yeah. just, you know, causing people some, you know, really oh-crap moments when you see um, a guy with that kind of speed and open field ability suddenly, you know, you know, having a linebacker or even a, you know, a nickel safety having to come out uh, and pick him up, I think we're going to get some mismatches there. And, you know, I lived in Cincinnati while um, while Kelly was there, and uh, that offense had a lot more creativity to what than what we've necessarily seen uh, in years one, two, and one and two and three of the of the Kelly uh, era. So I'm really excited to see, you know, now that he's putting his staff in place, Chuck Martin's now you know, kind of going to take the reins, and I think they're going to start to push the accelerator like they did in Cincinnati. And, and a guy like Carlisle is just exactly what you need to see with that, you know, with that kind of spread and the open field ability. Uh, it's going to be really exciting. That is definitely exciting. And obviously with Golson maturing, that's another huge weapon. Um, you know, well, his, what, run, his running ability, you could open up a lot of option plays with Carlisle in the backfield and stuff like that. It's very exciting. Well, when's the last time, Eric, you've been sitting here in May and going, man, I'm really happy and comfortable with where we're at at the quarterback position, and, and we know what's going on there. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's absolutely uh, the the right thing to be looking at right now with him. It seems like forever. We have to go back to the end of 2008. 
Would that be? I think that yeah. would be right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's been a long, painful trip, but here we are. Following Clausen's near perfect game against Hawaii. Yeah. Right. All right. Let's transition to segment number two. We'll talk a little bit of recruiting. Uh, since our last podcast, we had Elijah Hood, a running back athlete out of North Carolina, verbaling to Notre Dame. Um, he had visited a few days prior to that podcast, and uh, his parents had came with him, and they were a big key to him verbaling, and they apparently loved the campus. Um, that would give the team seven running backs uh, for 2014, heading into not this fall but the fall after. Now I'm wondering, is that too many running backs? Should we should we be worried? Um, no one's going to be graduating. I suppose Atkinson could leave early, or someone else could leave early. Um, I'm just wondering, Joe, if you think um, that you're going to see Folston and Carlisle possibly move to the slot full-time. I wonder what your thoughts on that one. Well, I think that's certainly one solution, and I know you know the staff has shown that they're not afraid to move McDaniel anywhere. They, they, they feel that particular week, and he seems to be willing and able to pick it up. Um, you know, I, I think unlike the quarterback position, you know, that embarrassment of riches um, at the running back and, and, and truly the running back slot receiver hybrids position is, is actually a lot of flexibility for the staff in terms of what they call, who they have, and more importantly, the resiliency. Um, you know, we knock on wood have, have been fairly fortunate on in the, in the injury front the last two to three years. Um, but you get, you know, a guy like Carlisle going down, uh, knowing that you've got you know three four five options with some with some eligibility left allows you to keep that flexibility in the playbook and and really do that that next man in thing that that uh, this team's become known for. That's true. Now the weird thing is, I think you know we haven't seen freshman running backs make a whole lot of uh, waves in their first year. Um, I know there's recently an article in BGI by Lou Samaji talking about uh, some of the best freshman running back seasons in Notre Dame history. We have to go all the way back to uh, Darius Walker, I think, in 2004, and then even further, way back before that. So it's been a while since we've seen freshman running backs come in and make an impact, and it looks like we might be seeing two this fall, and I think Hood is definitely the type of player who could come in next year, and you know he could even push for starting minutes. I think he's that good. Yeah, he may be, but the only thing I would, you know, in my role as as the usual voice of caution. I mean, we a lot of us spent last um, spring and summer getting really excited for the the emergence of Devonte Neal and what he was going to be able to do, and the staff talking about how excited they were about Devonte Neal and getting him touches and getting him the football in his first year. And other than fair catching a bunch of punts, you know, I think they only ran two or three plays all year that were designed to get him touches as a true freshman. So um, I think we've, you know, you got to let some of this play out uh, in terms of guys making the leap from high school ball to the, to the big time. Uh, and I think the other thing you got to let play out is um, Kelly has shown through the years that he, he values experience. He talks about guys who have game experience, scar tissue, uh, and he doesn't like to throw those young guys out there unless, um, unless he's really pressed to do so. So uh, I, I get all the enthusiasm for the new talent, and obviously you have to have that pipeline. 
Um, but I'm also really pleased with the amount of development that this staff does of the talent that they've got as they progress through their time on campus. Oh, you're just trying to rain on rain on my Elijah Hood parade. That's okay. Well, no, not at all. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, tr I'm trying to keep that Carolina um, pipeline as as open as we can. Uh, but I also think that uh, you know that's, that's a huge commitment, and it's a great it's a great uh, yet another kind of great feather in the cap for Kelly and the staff on the recruiting front. But uh, everyone needs to take, I think, a little bit of a deep breath when it comes to. You know, freshmen getting hand. You know, again, an 18-year-old kid getting handed the ball their first, you know, couple weeks on campus uh, is it's a it's a big stretch. It's a big stretch, and uh, I, I hope for the best. I mean, I'd love the guy to be a game breaker from the day he walks in, but uh, I also want him to have the time to develop and, and become the kind of player uh, we think we can get. With a, you know, whenever we're picking up these four and five star guys, you want to see them progress and not regress, uh, as we've seen under some of the previous coaching regimes. That's true, and you have, you know, Elijah Hood has another 18 months before he's uh, at Notre Dame, and he has his whole senior season to play out. Hopefully there's no injuries, but it's a long time for uh, a current high school junior. Yeah, I'm going to run over to Charlotte and wrap that guy in bubble wrap every Friday night from, from this point on. Hopefully they're blowing teams out and he's not playing a whole lot in the second half. I know he that was the case a lot this past year, so... All right, let's take a look at the next verbal. We had Quentin Nelson, uh, an offensive lineman out of New Jersey, um, another highly touted kid. Uh, he was actually, a lot of the experts thought that he would verbal well before Hood did, but uh, Hood committed and then went on Twitter and started recruiting, and Nelson popped not much longer after that. Um, I just wanted to take a, a couple moments here and, and take a look at the linemen that they've recruited on offense the past two cycles here. Um, right now we're sitting with three for the 2014 class, and that's an eight total with five from this previous class that will be coming in this fall. And using the 247 Sports composite ranking, we have Sam Mustafer 931, Quentin Nelson 933, Jimmy Byrne 908. Those are the current verbals. And for the previous class that are coming in this fall, we had Steve Elmer at 946, Hunter Biven 953, Mike McGlinchey 928, John Montellis 933, and Colin McGovern 918. That's a lot of really good, solid offensive linemen. I just love hearing all those nines to start, right? I mean, that's I mean that's showing the pipeline and it's showing the ability of the staff to go out and, and – dig up the kind of top-level talent that it's going to take to, to get these guys back over the top again. It's definitely. Um, as far as future commits, we have um, Alex Bars. He's rumored to be down to Notre Dame and Michigan. There was some talk that he was ready to verbal, possibly to Notre Dame, um, but that he wanted to take some time and think about it a little bit. Uh, so we'll see if anything happens there. I wouldn't really expect anything in the, over the next two or three weeks. Recruiting's been pretty quiet for Notre Dame. Um, I don't think I've even updated the big board over the past five or six days, which is pretty unusual. Well, I'll save the commenters ahead of time, Eric, and say if he has to think about it, fire Kelly. <laughs> no, well, I think I... It, it, was, it was a case of him... He thought he was making the right choice, and you know he just wants to take his time. And obviously, the coaches are going to back off when that happens. So yeah, absolutely. And I, I think 
you know, the, the most important thing here is, is exactly what you said, which is I think we're in really good shape. And we've put nine extremely good linemen either on the radar or on their roster uh, in, a, in, a, in a really nice period here. And so clearly uh, the message is out there uh, from a recruiting point of view. And it's great to see guys like Hood and others using social media to really pull these classes together, uh, both with the skill guys and, and now the trench guys as well, um, you know, and, and you don't hear as much about the guys down in the trenches. I mean, the, the, the five-star guys who are touching the ball are generally the ones we're going to hear about, but uh, they're pulling these guys in the trenches as well, which is absolutely fantastic. Exactly, and if Bars was to commit, that would be nine over the past two years, and I know three or four is probably the number this year. They're probably going to sit on um, four if Bars was to commit, and hopefully get uh, another elite offensive lineman down the stretch. So it's not easy either. You know, having a, a class last year, five guys, it's not easy to pull in another large haul. And the coaching staff seems to be doing it pretty easily. Yeah, and, and remarkably holding them together. I mean, I know last year was a much better example compared to two years ago when we were all, you know, spinning in, in madness as, as people committed, decommitted, switched, and flipped. Um, but it seems like, uh, the pro, you know, Kelly again, and Coach Kelly and his staff seem to be getting the process to a point where they're targeting the right guys, they're getting them the right process, they're getting them the right message, and, and they're holding them together. Last year was a great example of a class that just held together phenomenally well through the process. Yeah, and hopefully we see that again this year. It seems, to have, a, it seems to have a lot of the same flavor as last year. So far so good, right? That's true. All right. Um quarterbacks. Uh since we last did our podcast, um I talked a little bit about how the coaching staff might be possibly looking towards two thousand fifteen. Um but over the past couple of weeks they've offered three more quarterbacks. Um one is Jacob Park from South Carolina Another is David Cornwell from Oklahoma, and the last is Kyle Allen from Arizona. Three highly touted kids, um, pretty much in the high four-star area, so it kind of tells you the coaches aren't really settling. Um, out of that, out of those three, I think Kyle Allen's probably the only uh, realistic opportunity right now. He's a teammate of Mark Andrews, a wide receiver who's very high on Notre Dame's big board, and um, I think they're going to be visiting this summer, but that's a little bit down the road. Uh, Kyle Allen was actually offered by Alabama today, so he's blowing up a little bit on the national scene. So we'll see what they do with the quarterbacks. They now have four four uh, quarterback offers out. Well, I think that's another position that, you know, similar to running back, it's there's 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 very little downside in stockpiling talent, and I'm sure we'll get a bunch of comments now uh, about well, what do you mean? You know, Gunnar Keel's playing at, at Cincinnati now, and I think that's but that actually it, it builds the case as to why you you have to keep your your radar nice and broad when it comes to the quarterback position and be willing to stockpile and and you know make sure you've got plans every year for what that succession and progression is going to look like. And, and the staff's shown that the ability to do that. I mean, bringing Zaire in um, is, is a, you know, was a great, great move for last year. And it sounds like they've got the, the right kind of prospects, you know, for the class coming in the following year. So uh, I say, keep that net as wide as it can be when it comes to the quarterback position and start locking in uh, 
much later in the process than you might for for some of the hosses down in the trenches. Yeah, I'm really interested to see how they handle that situation. I, my gut instinct is that they're going to probably uh, try to shoot for some of the, the really highly talented kids and then probably have to, I don't want to say settle, but probably get someone else a little bit further down on the national scene. Um, obviously, with the Gunner Keel situation, you know, quarterbacks especially are going to look at the depth chart and with Golson having three more years, it'll be two more years for quarterbacks in this cycle and obviously Zaire is a very talented kid as well so we'll see how they uh, they handle that situation and who they can reel in for this cycle. Yeah, it's another arcade, you know, RKG kind of a situation I think. You know, you've got some really great talent on campus right now. What you really are looking now, now at, I think, are parts of the puzzle. And, you know, there'll be some people that say, you know, how could we sign this, you know, borderline four-star QB, you know, or, you know, kind of even the high three-star QB. Uh, but, you know, I think from a Notre Dame point of view, you look at the value of a guy like Reese in terms of a glue guy uh, on the on the roster, and, and there's a lot to be said for that. And I think they're going to build uh, both with talent and with personality at that particular position, particularly given the, the the amount of talent that sits on campus today. Definitely. I, I also kind of thought that maybe this would be a good cycle to recruit more of an athlete at the quarterback position, maybe someone who's a little bit more raw, who could come in, play quarterback for a year or two, if it didn't, and if it didn't work out, could possibly transition to another position, possibly wide receiver or tight end or what have you, but I'm not sure that's really in the coaching staff's DNA. I think if they're going to recruit a quarterback, they're going to try to recruit the best quarterback possible. I think so, but then you look at what they were willing to do with a guy like Massa, who clearly wasn't going to crack that depth chart and say, hey, listen, we want to keep, we want to, this is a good football player, uh, and we want to make sure we get the right uh, football decision made for both the team and for him. And, and you know, it, granted, Luke hasn't had a ton of success at the receiver position yet, but. Uh, you know, I think that they, they have shown a little bit of willingness for that, but I think, as you said, Eric, I don't think they recruit for it. I think they're willing to make the change as the as the situation dictates, but they typically don't recruit that way. That's right. All right, moving on to segment three. Um, recently, Notre Dame uh, released a proposed stadium renovation. Um, it kind of blew up the Internet for a little bit. Lots of rumors, lots of talk about, you know, is it right? Is it too big? Is it ruining the stadium? I know you're an alumni, Joe. Um, what year are you a graduate? So I'm from 95, uh, which gives me an interesting perspective on stadium stuff because we were there um, through the expansion of the bowl and the and the idea of you know what what's there today went up. I missed my freshman, sophomore, and junior years was in the original Rocky Memorial, you know, the original bowl. Uh, and and we were the last, you know, we saw that expansion go on during our senior year, and then open uh, the year after I graduated. And uh, it's remarkable to me, Eric, to see a lot of the same patterns and discussions repeating themselves now. As you know, the university just says, "Hey, a, we're talking about it, and b, here's a picture of what it might look like." And uh, to see the level of reaction is always really interesting to me when people start talking about the stadium. Now, the big idea with the stadium was to create some sort of student center and a lot more uh, classrooms and meeting areas. Is that something 
you think is going to be uh, smart for the future? I think it's really, really interesting, and I, I think I think there's two elements of that. One is I think that the entire campus has seen a migration a bit to the south and east. You know, as the the two tower dorms, Grace and Flanner, are now used as office facilities and not as student housing. You've seen a lot of the migration of campus head in that direction. You know, the um, all the new you know, retail and food options that are right there off of campus, uh, the new dorms, the movement of everything kind of into that corner of campus. I think this is a very natural progression. Um, you know, again, not to, you know, the, not to play the back in the day card, but in the, in the early 90s, the stadium was really that edge of campus that you didn't really go to. To Bartolo Hall, which is right out, you know, just, you know, just outside of campus, there was a brand new classroom building, and that was considered kind of going way out there. Uh, especially for those of us who lived in Grace and Flanner on the other side of campus. So, you know, that idea that campus has moved in that direction, you now have the hockey stadium down there and all these just wonderfully great developments, I think bringing the using that, that migration and then using the stadium as a focal piece of that migration is absolutely great for campus. And uh, other than, you know, a bunch of us old guys who might scream, hey, you know, these kids got it too good. Uh, they didn't suffer the way we had to suffer. Uh, I can't see an argument against that. Um, using the stadium as a focal point, you know, as a student, it's it's the most important place six or seven times a year, you know, six times a year for you uh, f over four years. It's 24 times that you're there, but they're the most important 24 Saturdays of your life. So uh, you really, you like the idea that that becomes more of a centerpiece of your campus life. And, and so that's part of it. I think the other part of it is, uh, the stadium only gets used ten times a year, or you know, or, or seven, you know, seven or eight times a year, and uh, you saw that in the the press release they put out, where they were very specific in terms of reference of the number of times it's going to be used. Uh, I think there's there's a strong signal being sent by the athletic department, by the university, that you know, despite the the tradition of hey, this is only for football, I think you're going to see the stadium get used for more things in campus life. Uh, I think they're going to look for, you know, opportunities to play more than maybe just the Inter Hall Championship. There, I think you're going to see opportunities to see more events in the stadium, uh, which, you know, obviously then people will start asking the field turf question as well. But I think that's the two layers of this thing. I think the campus migration, which, which frankly the administration's handled wonderfully, and then the idea that the stadium gets used more and becomes more of a center of campus life. Those are the two key themes, and those are themes that, as an alumni, I'm completely fired up about and ready to get on board for. That's great. Actually, I, I love the idea myself. Um, I live about seven hours from Notre Dame, and when I was younger, um, I used to drive to Chicago for some hockey tournaments, and uh, going on campus, it was always kind of a bummer that you couldn't really go into the stadium at all. You know, you could go to campus and obviously there's lots to do on campus and it's beautiful and everything but the stadium was just kind of there and you really couldn't experience it at all. It'd be nice and you, yeah, to and be even, able to go in there. Even as a student, Eric, it's completely locked to you, right? I mean, it's locked yeah. to you until it's opened up by the ushers and you show your ticket book on Saturday and the idea that it becomes a bigger part of campus life I think is really exciting. And True. I think it has a halo effect on the balance of campus. And maybe, you know, depending on how it's executed, a halo effect on the balance of the athletic programs as well. That's right. I don't think the whole 
student center aspect attached to the stadium is going to be that controversial. I know, uh, just seeing some things online, that they're trying to develop the strip from the stadium uh, due south down to the Sculpture Park and down into the new uh, Eddy Street uh, commons. So I don't think that's going to be terribly controversial. I know people are going to nitpick it and say they should do this or that, but I, I definitely think the whole multi-purpose issue to the stadium renovation yeah. is going to be a lot more controversial. I think so, you know. I, 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 but you know, it's crazy, man. I mean, people will talk about the color of the brick for That's hours true. and hours and days and days, and so you're going to see that. You know, to me, if you want to get into controversial things about the stadium, the introduce the introduction of the luxury box. I think you know the potential for that and what people read into the drawing with that, and then the the kind of debate that that drives in terms of is that a Notre Dame football experience? Is that adding to the atmosphere? Is it detracting from the atmosphere? Even some good discussion as to whether or not that's adding or detracting from the university's ability to fundraise around the football program. Uh, that to me becomes the much more controversial and more. Uh, spirited discussion. Uh, I think you're right. The, the idea of it as a campus center, that's a, that's that's tough to argue with. That's motherhood and apple pie. Uh, the luxury boxes, however, Eric, that becomes a much more interesting discussion. Yeah, it seemed at, at first uh, that discussion was kind of muted because of the whole video boards and all the other uh, topics. But I think further down the road, once you know people actually see that suite being built, and some of the financial figures come out and people learn about the experience and hear stories about what it's like in there, I think it'll be a little bit more controversial. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be, I think it is going to be one of those things where people are resistant to change. Uh, and that's just one of the natures of Notre Dame. It's that any institution that values its tradition is naturally a bit resistant uh, to change. But I'm I'm of the attitude that the university has executed a lot of improvements well. It's executed a few of them poorly, too. I mean, I'm not Pollyannic in the sense that I believe that everything they've done has been right. Uh, but uh, on the whole, you have to say that the, their percentage is pretty darn good. And if this looks like it's making sense... Um, you know, color me is getting behind Doc, you know, getting behind Jack Swarbrick and saying, "Hey, listen, if 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 he thinks this is the right way to go, he's been right more way more often than he's been wrong so far." That's true. Now, I wanted to ask you a question, since you're our one of our basketball analysts. Um, do you expect the basketball practice facility to be to be part of this plan? I know it hasn't officially been announced yet. Um, I saw something I think about a week ago. I don't know if it was Mike Bray or not, but they said that they were trying to work on a donor um, giving money for a practice facility. I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on that whole issue. God, I hope so. I have to tell you, as a basketball fan, just and and someone with a you know a bit of a history on campus, just the thought that that we're trying to get, you know, McDonald's All American level basketball players to come and take a look at the pit. And say, well, yeah, that's where we practice and get together and play pickup. You know, that's not the kind of impression we want to be leaving on recruits in terms of Notre Dame's seriousness about basketball. And even, you know, I, I'm not a big follower of the women's game, but you know, we've got a women's team making Final Fours and you know, putting people in the WNBA, and they're practicing in that same pit as well. Um, you know, I think we've got to really take a long, hard look at our basketball facilities. But you know, as you notice, it's a, it's really a fundraising thing and. 
99.9 of the 99.9 percent of the athletic funds are 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 really directed at things. I mean, you saw that when the softball and baseball stadiums went up. You saw that when the Compton Ice Center went up. Uh, right now, basketball hasn't had that that kind of mystical, magical donor to get behind it. Uh, but I think I'm hoping you know that this stadium project maybe as a whole. Uh, does include some look at the ACC, some look at the basketball facilities in a way that gives Mike Bray um, and, and Muffet McGraw the kind of facilities they need that match the kind of success they're having, to be honest with you. I mean, they're, they've, they've managed to you know, make tournaments, become a nationally relevant squad, bring TV audiences in, and frankly, you know, helped make this ACC thing happen. I mean, I'm not under any delusions that it didn't happen under anything other than a football guys, but if our basketball was going to be non-competitive, we, I don't know that we could have made this move, uh, but both of our basketball teams will, will be competitive in that league. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that people see that and see the need uh, to really take those facilities up a notch. If you, if you, if you pull that drawing apart, Eric, you know, CSI style, you can kind of say, gosh, there seems to be a segment of it that, that extends out towards the ACC. Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's the portion of this that they're thinking about from a basketball facility. That was actually one of the first things I thought about when I saw the, the uh, proposed stadium renovation. You see that portion connected to the Joyce Center, and I was, immediately I thought of, oh, well, that's going to be a new practice facility over there as well. Um, let me just ask you a couple logistic questions. How much money do you think would a new practice facility cost? Good Lord, you're asking the wrong guy. I mean, honestly, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's on the level of what the Compton Ice Center cost. I think that thing is a, is a shining palace, right? And, and ice facilities are more expensive. I mean, there's a little bit of flexibility in campus there now that hockey's moved into, you know, now that they have the ice center, there's a question as to whether or not you still need the existing first dome of the ACC to continue to be an ICE facility. And maybe that's a chance to sink some maybe more reasonable money. You know, maybe instead of talking 10, 20, 50 million, you're talking 5 to 10 million to renovate that uh, side of the dome and, and give, you know, a couple of different facilities into that because it's a, it's, a, it's a tremendous amount of space. Uh, and if you're moving the hockey team out of there, maybe you've got an opportunity to rethink that that part of it. Uh, so there, I think there's there's some master planning options. Um, you know, you see NBA teams practice in relatively, you know, affordable facilities. You know, Dallas kind of Dallas Mavericks, notwithstanding. You know, I don't think we're talking a twenty or thirty million dollar facility here. I think we're talking a, a two to five million dollar facility could could easily get it done from a basketball point of view. That was actually the second part of the question I was going to ask you. It seems like that northern section of the Joyce Center would be a perfect spot. Don't really you think? Would. Yeah, I mean, it, it really would. Uh, you know, they've housed the hockey team for years there. Uh, I even took uh, ice skating in PE one year there. So uh, I think it's a great facility, but, you know, what they're doing with the Compton Ice Center, and, and I think the, the need to take something like an ice center and make it, turn positive revenue and, and be a part of campus life again because it's expensive to run, uh, I think that you're going to see the need for that North North Dome uh, as an ice facility go to zero very quickly. Well, I hope so. I'm not, I'm not one of those people that gets too worked up about Irish basketball, but I think with the whole renovation process, and it's not just football, you know, this is definitely a, a larger plan for the university and campus. It would be really great to see some sort of practice facility within five or six years. Well, and I think, 
there's an opportunity for basketball to take the next step. And uh, this transition to the ACC, again, in a lot of ways reminds me of the transition to the Big East where you have a segment of the fan base who's like, oh, crap, you know, this is going to be tough. But I actually think the opportunity for the team to step up, uh, raise their level of play, raise their level of exposure is, is really high. And it's a shame that they have practice facilities that don't match that opportunity and don't uh, reflect that opportunity. So that, that's really what I'm hoping for. All right, speaking of the ACC, um, they open up in a new conference this fall. And why don't you tell us about the schedule that's coming out? Well, it's exciting. And, and as I wrote on the site, you know, we finally now know kind of in a league that is going to have to feature unbalanced schedules, you know, where, where we're going where, where we're to slot in uh, and, and how that's going to come together for us. And, and I think, you know, as a student or, you know, a fan in the South Bend area, you got to be really, really fired up to see Duke come into town and to see those Blue Devil uniforms and be able to kind of hate the team everybody loves to hate uh, right there on your home floor. It's going to be a lot of fun. That's right. Uh, and, and really the, the connection between Coach K and, my, and Coach Bray uh, becomes part of that as well. So I think that's going to be, you're going to see college game day for that game, you know, provided our guys play pretty well in the preseason, which I think they will. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot of hype and a lot of fun around that particular game. So for me, uh, that was the, the game that jumped off the page, the ability to host Duke uh, is, is a great opportunity in year one. That's a no-brainer, most anticipated home game. Oh, God, no doubt, no doubt at all. I mean, I think, you know, Carolina coming to town is also really exciting. But, uh, again, the connection with Bray, I think the similarity of our two, organiz of our two institutions, and I, I think the, the future potential for rivalry there, um, you know, obviously we're going to be the little brother in that rivalry. I mean, from a football point of view, we're going to be, you know, kind of Purdue to their Notre Dame. Uh, but that's okay. Uh, I think that that's something that our basketball team needs. I think they need that target. I think they need that 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 organization to shoot for. And uh, if you're going to pick one to role model yourself after and shoot for, uh, Duke is certainly it. Now, as far as the most anticipated road game, would you say that's North going to be North Carolina? Yeah, I think it is. You know, we do have the home and home with them, and I think the trip down to the Deem Dome. Uh, really is the kind of, I, I think, primary one. You know, if you think about our home and homes, we've got Boston College, um, which, you know, frankly, ho-hum, uh, Georgia Tech, North Carolina, Virginia. I actually think the trip down to Virginia is a really, really interesting game from a basketball point of view, uh, but probably isn't the, the kind of marquee, hey, we're going to, you know, lead a, we're going to lead the ESPN coverage that week with that game. Um, and then we go to Florida State. Um, we go to Maryland, we go to Miami, we go to Syracuse where we've obviously been before and we go to Wake Forest. So uh, to me that trip into the Dean Dome in terms of a historic venue, uh, an opportunity to make a big splash with the game, uh, I really like I really like that trip. Uh, and I also like the fact that it's about 20-25 minutes from my house, but uh, I like that trip for us in terms of an exciting road game. Personally, I'm looking forward to the away game at Syracuse. It's about two hours away from me. There you uh, go. I'm wondering if they're going to move the court for that game. I'm, there's a lot of Notre Dame fans in this area. so 
Yeah, it's always great when they're when they put it in the middle, right? And you get the the full the full carrier dome experience. And and I think you know, of the teams that I'm excited to see come with us, um, you know, to the ACC, you know, I'm I'm really excited to see Syracuse come across. I think that that's a quality program. I think that they bring, um, they bring a great basketball tradition into the league. I think the league's ready to embrace them. Uh, it's interesting amongst the ACC diehards here in Carolina that that is the team that they're paying the most attention to with, with and then and then kind of Louisville um, who I'm much less excited to see come with us in the 94 feet of fouling um, but it'll be interesting to see how that style translates uh, into the ACC then Pitt and then most of them think of us as an afterthought and I think that's going to be really exciting for us because the ACC is a very interesting league Eric uh, you have some at the top tier of it, you have Duke and North Carolina that have really, in the last few years, separated themselves from the balance of the league. I mean, State was picked to be very good last year and disappointed. Syracuse, obviously, I mean, I'm sorry, not Syracuse, but Miami last year popped up and surprised a bunch of people. But the league typically has been on this cycle where it's Duke and Carolina, one or two other teams that kind of pop up, but then a lot of also-rans. And so the, the the injection of energy that you're going to get from a Syracuse, and and I don't think they're anticipating, but, but I also think they're going to get from a Notre Dame really vying to be in that top segment of the league. Uh, I, I'm really looking forward to what that does for the ACC over time, and I think it hopefully uh, provides a shot in the arm to some programs that have been a bit dormant, like Virginia, like Wake Forest, like Georgia Tech, uh, and, and really get them going again. So you'll definitely buy that you think Notre Dame's going to surprise some of these think, some of these ACC teams I do think they will uh, you know I'm not gonna go out on you know I'm you know when I look at the schedule I go oh geez two against Carolina that's a tough break uh, I think traveling to Virginia is gonna be tough I think hosting Duke is gonna be really really tough uh, and, and going to Syracuse is always tough we know that so you know I'm not predicting us to be you know fighting for a, a one or a two seed in Greensboro for the ACC tournament but I, you know, I think that a four or five seed uh, is a legitimate goal, given the um, given the lineup, given a lot of the turnover in the league, given where some of these teams are at. Uh, I think we could fight for that four or five seed in Greensboro, and that would surprise a bunch of people. And and you know, I think a few of us on the basketball staff have been saying, you know, maybe this change of energy and getting out of Madison Square Garden and coming down to Greensboro with a decent seed, maybe we see a little more success. Uh, and and that would be something that would be really great because uh, you know I think if there's anything that that us basketball fans have been looking for in the last few years it's some form of tournament success be a conference or or more importantly in the big dance so uh, I I think we're gonna fight to be in that that second tier uh, just below Carolina and Duke who I in th- Syracuse I think those three are gonna separate themselves from the pack this year and and so I really think if you're Mike Bray's team. Your goal is to to be the top of that next tier, to really be in that four or five, you know, at the worst six slot in the league. That's a good point. Um, setting the league wins at twelve, do you think they're hovering around that area? So you know, you had asked me that earlier, Eric, and you'd kind of put me into a a, a bit of an analysis, and I felt like one of those uh, one of the election guys because once I took a look at the schedule, it was funny. It it, it kind of it was all about Florida, 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 Florida. So if you, if you break the schedule down, you know, we've got home games against Boston College, Georgia Tech, Virginia, Clemson, NC State, Virginia Tech, and Pitt. Um, those seven games I would expect to be favored at home. 
Notre Dame, you know, Braves teams have just played so well uh, in Purcell Pavilion. I always want to call it the ACC, but they play really, really well at home. And I think you got seven there that you can feel pretty good about. Uh, you know, none of them are sure wins, but I, I think you feel pretty good about those. I think Duke and Carolina at home, those are tough. So let, you know, let's put those kind of below the line. I think you got seven games you can win at home. Then you got Boston College, Georgia Tech, and Wake on the road. I think you know Notre Dame handles their business, and that's three wins on the road. So there's your ten wins. So now your remaining games, you got Carolina and Syracuse on the road. I think those are pretty tough. You know, I'm not gonna not gonna try to you know fit those into the the win column prematurely. But then the other three games you have are Florida State, Miami, and Maryland on the road. And so you got to find two of those three to make your 12 win kind of over under there. Um, you know, Florida State is a you know nine and coming off a nine and nine league year and, and an NIT, but they it all ha- it it all for them depends on this Wiggins kid. Uh, you know, if they sign if they sign him, uh, they're looking really really tough. And and obviously we've never matched up well. Uh, with any of the Leonard Hamilton teams, so I'm a little worried about that one. Miami's a bit of a wild card. They had a ton of roster turnover, you know, coming off a very successful year. Uh, whether or not Laranega can reload or not, well, you know, remains to be seen. And then you got Maryland, you know, kind of in their swan song in the lead. They're a very young team and, and played well in the NIT. So I, I'm not feeling great about that Maryland game. So I really think, you know, if 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 Braves team wants to get to 12 wins, which I think is a smashing success in year one, I really think more than 10 is a success. But 12, in, in my mind, is a smashing success. They're going to have to go down to Florida and play well. And, and hey, who wouldn't want to leave South Bend in, in the winter uh, to go down to Florida for a little while? So hopefully that, that sunshine and energy and vitamin D will fire our guys up. That's right. Sounds like you're pretty excited about the ACC. I couldn't be more excited, and it's not just because I'm selfishly going to get to go to a bunch of games, but I, I do think it's the right move. Uh, I think the Catholic 7 would have been a struggle for us. It's going to be interesting to see how that league comes together. and uh, So I think we're, we're, we're really sitting pretty in this, and it's great for basketball, but it's also great for some other sports too. I think baseball is going to benefit. Uh, I certainly know lacrosse is going to benefit. Uh, I think soccer benefits as well. So uh, really good move for Notre Dame athletics and, and, and in particular for basketball. Exactly. A lot of the Olympic sports are going to be in great position, and as well, you have hockey moving into the Hockey East, which is probably the premier conference in the country as well. Absolutely. All right, let's transition to our last segment here. Um, we taped this podcast a little bit later than we wanted to, so our Michigan preview is already up on the site. We're taping this on a Monday, so it went up there this morning. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, – Michigan and who they're losing on their roster. Obviously, Denard Robinson is gone. Um, I always thought. Thank God. Thank God. What a what an interesting player he's been throughout his career. He's just he's smashed Michigan records. He's been one of the most electric athletes in college football history, and yet it almost seems like Michigan is relieved that he's gone. And I know that a lot of that has to do with Devin Gardner and his potential, but it's just a very interesting uh, dynamic. Yeah, for a guy that was really larger than life for three years, it really did feel like it was out with a whimper, didn't it? Exactly. Um, And you look at their quarterback depth chart, they have Devin Gardner, and now they have a Shane Morris, a freshman, a true freshman coming in this summer, and that's it. They have walk-ons, and I know they're trying to look at some Juco players, but that's pretty frightening for... uh, 
a major college program. Yeah, talk about wrapped in bubble wrap. Yes, Devin Gardner is probably you know Brady Hoke probably follows him with a with a, a mattress and a couple of pillows, making sure every every landing is soft. <laughs> and the past couple of years, the Michigan running game has really struggled, especially last year. Uh, Fitzgerald Toussaint was coming back off of a pretty pretty good season in 2011, struggled mightily. Uh, I know the interior of the Michigan line wasn't blocking particularly well. Uh, obviously, Notre Dame fans remember the Notre Dame defensive line having their way with Michigan last year. Uh, Toussaint ended up breaking his leg pretty bad. I think it was in the Ohio State game, one of the last games of the season for them. Uh, he's been coming back. He was almost healthy in the spring, so he should be healthy. But beyond that, they have a lot of bodies, but not anything that's going to blow blow you away. Um, they have a five-star freshman running back, Derek Green, coming in. Most expect him to come in and uh, get some playing time right away. Uh, Justice Hayes, he was a former Notre Dame commit. He's going to be a sophomore now. He played a little bit last year as a freshman. Um, looking yeah, they, they strike me, Eric, as a team that's really looking for somebody to step up. I mean, is that how you see it? I mean, it really, the, you know, you got – other than Fitz Toussaint, you know, they're really going to need somebody that isn't on our radar to, to emerge in order to be effective. Yeah, it's it's interesting because without Toussaint this spring, you know, the coaching staff there in Ann Arbor and Michigan fans were hoping that someone would step up, and it was kind of uh, interesting to see the coaching staff literally say, no one stepped up, it's still Toussaint's job. So we'll see what happens when uh, Derek Green, the freshman, comes in. They actually have a couple other true freshmen that'll be coming in as well. Um, they just a lot of bodies, but not anything terribly proven outside of Toussaint. Yeah, as a Notre Dame fan, you gotta be thrilled when you're hearing them say they're hoping to expectate you know, they're hoping for big contributions for the freshmen because, you know, if there's one thing you gotta worry about with freshmen, it's ball security, right? And sure. in terms of a Notre Dame Michigan game, you want to talk about games that tend to turn on crazy turnovers. Uh, I'd like to know um, that I've got some mature, experienced guys with their hands on the football in a game like that. Definitely. And also another part of that is Michigan going to more of a West Coast offense and having Gardner under center and trying to run the ball between the tackles. Uh, you have to like Notre Dame's chances this fall, knowing that Michigan really hasn't had the running game uh, on track for the past year or so. Well, certainly going back to our earlier conversation, do you want to run at Sheldon Day? you want to run at Lewis Nix? Or do you want to run at Stefan to it? I mean, really, go ahead, guys, pick. We're, we're okay. <laughs> we're going to be just fine. Um, looking at their tight end, they have uh, Devin Funches coming back. He's a true sophomore. He had a big start to last year and then kind of faded. Um, obviously, their quarterback issues didn't help, but um, they also have a true freshman, Jake Butt, who was in for spring. He performed pretty well. So they should have three solid bodies there with A.J. Williams, more of a blocker. Um, and you know they're going to want to put out a lot of two tight end sets in that uh, West Coast offense. Also, looking at the receivers, they lose one receiver to two receivers, I'm sorry, to graduation. Uh, Jeremy Gallon's back for a fifth year. Uh, this spring for them, they were looking at Amara Dorbo and Yohu Chesson two big receivers. They want them to step up. It's kind of the evolution of the, the Brady Hoke uh, offense in Michigan. They're going to get bigger, try to run the ball a little bit more. So I think this is going to be a bit of a transition year for them, especially with breaking in three new 
offensive lineman on the interior, which will be another interesting thing to watch. Um, yeah, and I think all that sounds great. And and certainly as an opponent, you're going, yeah, transition year. I like the sound of that, right? You know, we're going to catch these guys while they're still building. But then you got to remember that, you know, there were a lot of us saying that was really what was going to be true of Brian Kelly's team last year, right? This was the transition out of the Weiss recruits into the Kelly recruits, and, and we're still kind of amid, in that transition, and uh, we all know how that turned out. So uh, let's hope uh, Michigan has a little less uh, success than we did <laughs> pulling that third year off. Exactly. They're still a really talented team. Uh, Absolutely. You could argue that they've recruited better than Notre Dame the past two years. So, um, I don't think their depth is quite as uh, as good as Notre Dame's right now. But you look at their their starters at most positions. It's it's going to be a tough game to to play in the big house. Yeah, absolutely, and and to me, Eric, that's you. You bring up the biggest point with that game, which is I think you have a team that's gonna in Michigan that is gonna feed off that home crowd. I think you have a young, you know, a relatively young team that's gonna take that boost uh, and and really go with it. Uh, I think you have a very motivated team after last year. Uh, so really, it's gonna be a, a great testament to the the player leadership. Uh, on this year's team as to whether or not they can they can raise their game to that level uh, from an emotional point of view because as you said it's a talented team I mean the on paper matchup you know probably does slightly favor the Irish but at the same time um, you know they play the game on grass not on paper right that's true in my article I uh, have Michigan as a favorite so yeah, yeah, I, I, I've been impressed that the commentary, the commentary crew has, uh, has not uh, let you, or not uh, burned you and tarred you, and, burned you at the stake or tarred you and feathered you on that one yet. But I, I tend to agree that I think that's a really, really tough game for us, and its position in the season I think makes it much, much tougher, much, much tougher. Exactly. Uh, I know we were talking about whether that would be the tougher game or Stanford would be a tougher game. I think, in some ways, it looks like. It'll be nice to catch Michigan early in the season, but again, we're both going to be playing pretty easy games that first week of the season. There's going to be a ton of hype. It's going to be a night game in Ann Arbor. Uh, we just have a terrible time winning there. Um, you can even throw in the referees if you want. It's just never easy to go in there and win. So That actually brings up an interesting question, Eric. Do you know whether we're bringing ACC officials to that game or Big Ten, or, or what What will be the official situation in, in the in that game. I haven't heard anything about that. Um, it's usually been pretty public in the recent couple of meetings. Well, certainly after that one trip up there, everyone made it public when we brought Big East officials the next time. So it'll be interesting to see if we bring some ACC guys along with us or whether we allow them to uh, continue to use the Big Ten crews there. It'll be it'll be definitely something to watch for or at least something fun to talk about uh, and, and and trade barbs about as we, as we lead into that one. And, in terms of in terms of comparison to Stanford, um, you know Stanford probably, you know, has just been such a bruising, crushing game the last couple of years, and I do think that you know Stanford, you know, the pick to do well this year. I think Hogan is is a guy who who's the real deal. I think he's he makes them a better team than when we saw them. Um, I, I think that's a a tougher game on paper, but again, I think the position in the year. And the realities of the big house. I mean, certainly going to the farm uh, versus going to the big house. I'll pick the farm, you know, 
seven times and twice on Sunday. So uh, I think that's a really, really tough game for us. Yeah, looking at Stanford, I think um, they could have some offensive issues. They're going to have a really strong line. Uh, obviously, Hogan is going to be a nice young quarterback, but they're they're missing a lot of the receivers. Uh, graduated both of their tight ends, so yeah. a lot of question marks there. But on the defensive side, they're looking pretty strong. The only thing I'll say about that is I actually might favor playing that Stanford defense because I'm not sure they're quite as fast as Michigan. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, especially if you look at last year, Golson really you could use his legs really well against them. If he had held onto the ball, you know, he fumbled three times in that game. Yeah. You know, he was on pace for 100 yards in that game. So I think our speed is a little bit more of an advantage against Stanford. But, you know, Absolutely. That, Absolutely. That, game, that game is so far out, you know. Who knows yeah. what's going to happen. <laughs> There's a lot of football that we played between now and then. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Michigan is the – it's the official start of almost every Notre Dame season. I mean, just going back for years and years, right? That's the, the season really turns on, on this game. And uh, I thought everything you had in the preview in terms of, you know, their overall talent level, uh, I think the motivation level they're looking at, um, it really does point to a really, really great, you know, early season barometer for us going into that game. Uh, and, and they're looking at it the exact same way. I happen to have a, a younger brother who is a Michigan grad, and and I had asked him about it, and uh, for them it is it's that's a kind of an all-in game because uh, the momentum kind of builds from that, and uh, they've got us sandwiched in between a, a pretty, well, a, an extremely soft non-conference schedule. So uh, this is really their one big test outside the league, and uh, other than the OSU game, it's the one they all have circled. Yeah, definitely. It's going to be really interesting to see. You know, it's going to be a bit of a new frontier for Notre Dame not playing Michigan uh, in a couple of years. And... It is, but it isn't. And, and it was interesting today. I, a lot of people pointed out um, Brady Hoke's uh, comments to one of the alumni lunches that he was speaking to, saying that Notre Dame was, I believe, chickening out was the the phrase he used, um, which showed an odd understanding of history between our two institutions. But we'll we'll just leave it at that and say, you know, what we appreciate the 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 locker room material, um, you know, would I rather dump Purdue for these guys in a heartbeat? But um, the problem with that is, man, you're really setting yourself up for murderer's row every year if you decide you're going to keep Michigan, Michigan State, Stanford, and USC um, as your, you know, in your quote-unquote non-conference schedule. So um, while I'm sad to see them go on some fronts, I, I'm not sad to see them go because I, I do think it gives Swarbrick a lot more flexibility in terms of future schedules. Yeah, that's kind of where I am on that whole issue. I think in some ways it's it's difficult to let that game go, but you know, if we're able to sign a a big series or two, you know, 6 7 years down the road, we have another big game to look forward to or maybe a, a team we haven't played in 15 or 20 years maybe perhaps ever. Um, that's also fun to look forward to as well. Oh yeah, I mean, look at adding Oklahoma to the schedule. I thought that that was a great add. You know, I think um, you know about ten years ago when we added Tennessee for a home, a really nice home and home. Uh, I think things like that uh, are, are that that level of flexibility. Swarbrick has shown well, and even even you know for all his faults, Kevin White even showed that he was able to 
to use that to, to, to Notre Dame's advantage and, and build the brand and, and build in games that people really did want to see. You know, you know, despite all of the arguments around, you know, whether or not we should have put ASU on or whether or not Temple and Tulsa belonged on those schedules, um, you know, I, I think that flexibility is something that more times than not uh, we've used to our advantage. Yeah, it's going to be a bit of a hectic end here with the Michigan series. Um it reminds me a lot of the Penn State series, to be honest with you, Eric. You know, we were we were joking when we were speaking earlier about you know it's kind of like we're all the way back to the '90s here with a lot of us. We're talking stadium, we're talking NBC deals, we're That's talking right. basketball changing leagues. I mean, everything is kind of coming back full circle. And one of the things that we were really sad to see in the late '90s was the end of the kind of contiguous Penn State series, uh, and that was you know those famous Irish impact posters and the two point conversion at the end of the snow game and Rudy and all that good stuff that happened back then. And I think the Michigan situation is somewhat analogous to that, right? Where it was a long-time traditional thing. We have a really close and great deep history with them. But then uh, then again, we have a bit of a checkered history with them too. So um, I'm okay with taking this one off for a while and then revisiting it. Uh, hopefully, because I think they're both programs on the rise. Um, despite his insistence on not wearing the headset, Hoke seems to be having them going the right way. Um, and uh, count me as a believer in BK and, and, and us moving forward as well. So maybe we take a couple of years off. We both regroup and and and, and hit this thing up in you know a couple of years and really uh, make it something. That's very well put. All right, I think that'll wrap it up for One Foot Down Podcast Episode Two. I want to thank Joe Schuler for hopping on with the podcast, Ami. No worries, Eric. It was a pleasure, my friend. All right, take care, and go Irish. Yeah, that's right, go Irish.